Hello and welcome. I'm Dr. Michael Forfey. On behalf of CME Outfitters, I'd like to welcome you and thank you for joining us for today's CMEO briefcase entitled Diagnostic Tools, a Process of Exclusion. Today's program is supported by an educational grant from Jazz Pharmaceuticals. I'm a professor of neurology at the Albert Einstein College of Medicine and director of the Sleep-Wake Disorder Center Department of Neurology at the Montefiore Medical Center in the Bronx, New York. I'm also president of the New York State Society of Sleep Medicine and the past president of the sleep section of the Academy of Neurology. I'm delighted to be joined today by my distinguished colleague, Dr. Anne-Marie Morse. Anne-Marie, could you please introduce yourself? Thank you so much for having me today. So I'm Dr. Anne-Marie Morse. I'm an associate professor at Geisinger Janet Weiss Children's Hospital, and I also run the divisions of child neurology and pediatric sleep medicine. Good. Thank you, Emery. I'm delighted that you're joining me today for this discussion. The goal of this activity is to empower learners so that they can integrate appropriate assessment and tools to facilitate the early diagnosis of idiopathic hypersomnia. So let's begin, uh, first of all, with a case. Cases of uh, Maria, a 26-year-old, who presents with complaints of being tired, uh, fatigue, uh, uh, difficulty concentrating, uh, uh, difficulty remembering things, which is often termed uh, brain fog. And this is despite the fact that she's sleeping 10 hours a day. These complaints have been present for many years. She says it's hard for her to wake up for alarms. And uh, when she does, she doesn't feel awake for a long time. She has trouble functioning, can't think or remember things. She was recently let go from a job because of consistently underperforming. Symptoms began about 10 years previously. Uh, she was diagnosed with depression, given uh, medication three years ago. And the treatment at this time with, uh, was some improvement of the depression, but the sleep symptoms did not improve very much. Now, her lab work is essentially all normal. Her blood pressure is borderline 130-82, uh, BMI 29, the PHQ 9 is 10, which again is sort of a borderline uh, number. And uh, the medications that she's on is fluoxetine, 60 milligrams uh, once a day. So before we get into further assessment of her symptoms, let's ask the audience our first polling question. So what characteristics associated with Maria's case indicate idiopathic hypersomnia specifically? as a potential diagnosis? Is it long sleep time, depression, onset of symptoms in teenage years, cognitive impairment, or you just don't know? Please make a vote. Okay, so let's look at some of the core features of idiopathic hypersomnia. Emery, would you discuss these signs and symptoms of idiopathic hypersomnia for us? Sure. So when we use the case of Maria to really kind of identify some of the features that patients may describe uh, that are commonly seen in patients with idiopathic hypersomnia. So first and foremost, excessive daytime sleepiness is present in all individuals who have idiopathic hypersomnia, very frequently describing this never feeling refreshed, kind of very slow to process and, and move about. They also may have long sleep times. 
So the typical adult is typically sleeping seven to nine hours of sleep a night and waking up and feeling refreshed to be able to go about their day. In individuals with idiopathic hypersomnia, they typically are requiring greater than nine hours of sleep, sometimes 10, 11, 12, or more hours of sleep, and even despite that, still feeling unrefreshed. A very unique feature that is seen in idiopathic hypersomnia is something called sleep inertia. This is where there's not that refreshing feeling, and for many of us who don't have idiopathic hypersomnia, we sometimes can experience this as well. That's those nights where we had a horrible night's sleep. It was a shorter duration. You wake up and you really feel like, man, I was hit by a truck. I, I just can't get out of my bed. Hitting the alarm multiple times. And they can even experience extremes of this, where they can experience a phenomenon called sleep drunkenness. This is a very, very severe form of sleep inertia. This is where not only is it hard for them to arise, but they also may actually become combative or even discoordinated, not really even being aware of what's going on, so looking confused. There's also other daytime symptoms that can really impair the quality of life for individuals with idiopathic hypersomnia. They frequently will describe this phenomena called brain fog or feeling like they have a cognitive impairment, almost like my head is in a cloud and I can't really understand what's going on or be able to process exactly what may be there. A lot of times people may come to us because of problems like Maria is having at work, where they're showing up so they don't have decreased um, they don't have an increase in absenteeism, but they have decreased presenteeism. I physically am there, but cognitively am not. And then often are avoiding naps because of the difficulties um, with that severe sleep inertia. Yep. So uh, daytime behavioral measures really don't help this, do they? And uh, even if they take caffeine, they still don't feel better. And, and often, as you say, when they have these naps during the day, they can get sleep inertia after them and often don't feel so good. When you talk about the naps, one of the pieces that sometimes are puzzling to physicians when a person comes in and says, I have severe excessive daytime sleepiness, is the sleep inertia very frequently prevents patients from behaviorally wanting to actually take naps. So there's a learned behavior to avoid naps in a day because they are very frequently having difficulty to maintain short duration. So their naps are usually very long and unrefreshing, despite all the other strategies, such as what you have stated, of increased things like caffeine intake. Thank you. Anne-Marie, can you tell us now about the prevalence and uh, just how bad of a condition is this for the patient? So historically, idiopathic hypersomnia has undergone a lot of different changes in what it's been called over the years. And with that, also has had evolving approaches to how do we diagnose it. So this has resulted in some difficulties in identifying the prevalence. However, there has been a concerted effort of really trying to better understand this. And so we look at over the course of the last several years, 2019, 2020, and 2021, and what we're identifying is that there is a growing number of individuals who are experiencing this, this diagnosis. Although we're seeing that there's an increase in the number of individuals being diagnosed with idiopathic hypersomnia, one of the other care gaps that exists is really understanding what else is happening with these individuals? We've gone over the symptoms of idiopathic hypersomnia and what those burdens may be, but there's actually increasing amount of data that is allowing us to have a deeper dive into understanding what the burden overall looks like. 
So there was the ARISE study that was completed, which was, look, which was a delivery of surveys to individuals with idiopathic hypersomnia and asking them very specific questions about their symptoms and overall quality of life. For these individuals who participated, they self-identified as either long or not long sleep time. And what was I found when they had compared individuals with long sleep times compared to without long sleep time was that there tended to be a lower quality of life score for social life and stigma, more severe cognitive complaints, more severe cases of a depression, as well as worse presenteeism and activity impairment. Now, again, when individuals are self-identifying as having a higher burden by having longer sleep times, that may also just be a predictor of the overall burden that these individuals may be experiencing. Yeah, there are many different things, as you mentioned, that can impact on the uh, idiopathic hypersomnia, and it often gets confused with other conditions. Can you tell us a little bit about the differential diagnosis of idiopathic hypersomnia? Sure. So when we're talking about the differential diagnosis of idiopathic hypersomnia, there are a variety of other conditions that frequently are being considered. So other sleep disorders are always having to be entertained as possibilities when you have an individual who's complaining of excessive daytime sleepiness. So things like other central disorders of hypersomnolence, like narcolepsy, should be considered. However, also making sure you're looking for insufficient sleep syndrome, obstructive sleep apnea, or circadian rhythm disorders. Other areas to consider include psychiatric, medical, psychiatric and medical conditions, as well as medications. Now, although in, on this slide, it is not an intensive list of psychiatric and medical conditions, these are ones that very commonly may be encountered that do have excessive daytime sleepiness associated with them, and therefore also need to be considered. Maria's story by itself highlights this concept where we're seeing that she has a diagnosis of depression because of uh, there being kind of this marginalization, a self-withdrawal, an appearance as though that there is depressed feelings. And so therefore really needing to think about this. Unfortunately, some medications also can cause sleepiness and therefore you do need to evaluate the medications that individuals are, are taking. It's important to recognize that when we're considering the diagnosis of idiopathic hypersomnia, these individuals very frequently can have a high burden of disease and very impaired quality of life and can make it really difficult to disentangle what may be the main driver of the symptoms they're experiencing. So there's a lot of different things that can uh, mimic uh, idiopathic hypersomnia, and of course, many of these can coexist with it. So it can be quite difficult to make this diagnosis. And so People need to be aware of what the diagnostic criteria state because that's going to be able to help them. So let's uh, go on to a question about the diagnostic criteria. Which of the diagnostic criteria designed by the International Classification of Sleep Disorders, version three, that are exclusive to idiopathic hypersomnia compared with uh, narcolepsy? A, daily periods of irrepressible need to sleep or daytime lapses into sleep present for three months. Or B, no cataplexy is present. C, fewer than two sleep onset REM periods on the MSLT, or fewer than one if nocturnal REM latency is less than 15 minutes. Or D, you just don't know. Please make a choice. So the answer is uh, C, fewer than two sleep onset REM periods on the multiple sleep latency test or fewer than one if the nocturnal REM latency is less than 15 minutes. The key feature of uh, 
uh, idiopathic hypersomnia is that these people don't have the abnormal REM phenomena that we see with narcolepsy. And Marie, can you just discuss the, how the, there's this difference between narcolepsy and idiopathic hypersomnia and how there's some overlap in the symptoms? So as you can see by this Venn diagram, there is definite overlapping symptoms, but there are also some very distinct features that isolate the uh, diagnoses of narcolepsy type 1, type 2, and idiopathic hypersomnia. So in looking at narcolepsy type 1, very frequently, you may get a history of a features of cataplexy. And if you don't, if you were to do a spinal tap, you would identify that there is a deficiency in a specific neurotransmitter called orexin. In individuals who have narcolepsy type 2, they're going to have normal CSF orexin levels, and they are going to lack the features of cataplexy. However, there's an overlapping between narcolepsy type 1 and type 2 of there being the similar abnormalities on the multiple sleep latency tests with more than two sleep onset REM periods and an average sleep latency of less than eight minutes. You will also see potentially other REM dissociative features, as well as things like refreshing naps. They'll have disturbed nocturnal sleep, sleep paralysis, sleep-related hallucinations. Now, all these conditions are united by the feature of excessive daytime sleepiness and also by having features of an average sleep latency of less than eight minutes. However, idiopathic hypersomnia most typically is lacking these REM dissociative features, although there are some studies that suggest that up to 20 to 30 percent of people with idiopathic hypersomnia may have some episodes of these REM dissociative features, it is not a predominant feature as we see in narcolepsy type 1 and type 2. If you were to look at their sleep times and what their sleep schedules look like, we very commonly will find that individuals would report their ideal sleep hours to be greater than 11 hours. Sometimes because of social constraints, they're unable to get that very, very long period of sleep. However, um, uh, may be more inclined to desiring that. There also may be features of circadian dysrhythmia, meaning that they may be more likely to go to sleep a little bit later. And that sometimes can be difficult to, again, disentangle between a delayed sleep phase and actually idiopathic hypersomnia. Individuals who have idiopathic hypersomnia, because they typically are lacking these REM dissociative features, their diagnostic testing will show that an MSLT has less than eight minutes for their sleep latency. However, alternative strategies to diagnose include a 24-hour polysomnography or actigraphy with a sleep log that may demonstrate average sleep time of greater than 660 minutes or 11 hours. Uniquely, idiopathic hypersomnia has been reported in some cases to have spontaneous remission, meaning that the condition may go away all by itself. However, we don't typically find that narcolepsy type 1 and type 2 have these same experiences. Good. Thank you, Anne-Marie. I mean, there's clearly quite a lot of overlap between narcolepsy and idiopathic hypersomnia, but as you indicated, there are some specific differences. So let's look a little bit more closely at the international classification of sleep disorders. And can you discuss some of the limitations of the diagnostic criteria? Sure. When we're looking at the criteria outlined by the International Classifications of Sleep Disorders, Edition 3, we really are seeing that a predominant feature, again, is excessive daytime sleepiness. Most typically, it's going to be daily periods of irrepressible need to sleep or have daytime lapses into sleep present for at least three months. There are fewer than two sleep onset run periods, and you're going to not have any cataplexy in at least one of the following. 
As mentioned previously, an average civilian of less than eight minutes on an MSLT, a 24-hour um, uh, polysomnography demonstrating total sleep time of greater than 660 minutes, or risk actigraphy over about seven days in combination with sleep logs or sleep diaries, demonstrating that the average sleep times are about 660 minutes. Some of the limitations included in this include that, number one, there are limitations to even access to some of this testing. 24-hour polysomnography is not something that very frequently is, is available in the United States, although in some parts of the world, they do have algorithms for testing that include strategies like this. In addition, 20, uh, a seven-day risk actigraphy also frequently isn't utilized. Some of these limitations are that these are costly tasks that don't carry any type of ability for there to be um, reimbursement of cost. In addition to that, when we're looking at what the typical standard approach of using a polysomnography and multiple sleep latency test, there are some studies that demonstrate that the sensitivity, the likelihood for accurately diagnosing an individual idiopathic hypersomnia may be as low as 12%. On average, many of us would say that it's probably about 40%. Now, with that stated, it doesn't mean that the test is normal. We typically, again, are looking at the ICSD-3 saying that the average sleep latency needs to be less than eight minutes to diagnose. However, these patients are falling asleep on these maps and may have average sleep latencies of 10, 11, 12 minutes. And recognizing an adult shouldn't be having daytime naps. We should stop doing that at age of five. And so if we're seeing multiple naps in a day, that should be a red alarm for any of us. Okay, that's great. So you've discussed the uh, diagnostic criteria and we understand what some of the limitations can be on it. So let's assume that we've uh, diagnosed our patient and our patient has idiopathic hypersomnia. How are we going to follow that patient? Uh, there's an internet, there's an idiopathic hypersomnia severity scale. How would we use this scale, Anne-Marie, in our practice to monitor patients? And tell us a little bit about the scale. Sure. So for many people who may be watching this, this might be a novel scale that they may have not previously heard about. Very frequently when we're talking about sleepiness, we're usually referencing other scales like the upward sleepiness scale. However, the limitation of the upward sleepiness scale is that it's unidimensional. It's only getting at one aspect of the patient. We recognize that when we describe the symptoms of idiopathic hypersomnia, it is multifactorial with both daytime and nighttime symptoms, including features of sleepiness, long sleep times, sleep inertia, and brain fog. The value of the idiopathic hypersomnia severity scale is that this is a 14-question scale that is scored from 0 to 55, with scores greater than 22 consistent with a, a diagnosis of idiopathic hypersomnia, and the higher the score, the more severe the symptoms. This gets at an overall burden of the condition, looking at nighttime symptoms, awakening, naps, and overall burden. So giving us a much more comprehensive look, which will allow us to be more specific and personalized to the approach of care that the patient in front of you may need. Good, thank you. It's important to point out for people that uh, the idiopathic hypersomnia severity scale is not a diagnostic test in itself. It's once you've made the diagnosis, then you can use it to follow your patients. Uh, but let's talk a little bit more about the diagnostic challenges, uh, Anne-Marie. Can you talk a little more about those uh, difficulties in making this diagnosis? Yes. So when we're talking about idiopathic hypersomnia versus narcolepsy, there is this consistency of daily periods of irrepressible need to sleep or daytime lapses into sleep present for at least three months. And this is the same across idiopathic hypersomnia, 
narcolepsy type one and narcolepsy type two in International Classification of Sleep Disorders edition three. A notable change that has occurred with the most recent revision of the International Classification of Sleep Disorders edition three in the text revision is that narcolepsy type one and type two have removed that time frame of three months. However, in IH, there still is this persistence of having to maintain this three-month period of an irresistible need of falling asleep. We also can see that there can be some variability between tests, meaning that the test-retest probability can be variable. There has been some great work that has come out of um, centers like Emory that have demonstrated that individuals who had a PhD in MFLT and may have been diagnosed with idiopathic hypersomnia when repeated may actually normalize or look like narcolepsy type 2. The inverse is also true. A normal MSLT or evidence that would look suggestive of NT2 may then also evolve into IH. This may reflect some of the difficulties around the fact that we don't truly have an understanding of the underlying pathophysiology, nor do we have the very specific distinctions to really tease those apart. The diagnostic tools that are um, also being performed are also have flaws associated with them. The polysomnography is really performed to measure maximal sleep amount. There's usually restrictions in the lab at the time that the person has to wake up, not allowing them to have the actual full sleep period that they typically would uh, have if they had no restrictions. The MSLT assesses daytime sleep propensity. So it's very sensitive and specific for things like narcolepsy type one, but fail to meet that same sensitivity and specificity for idiopathic hypersomnia because that's a condition that's more marked by sleep inertia rather than this sleep attack feature that we may see in conditions like narcolepsy. We also may see that um, sleep logs and risk actigraphy may not be being utilized as widely as what we would look at. And also when looking at 24-hour protocols, we do have some difficulties in being able to actually obtain these in the United States. And even when looking at the protocols that have been utilized and implemented in Europe, such as in France and Italy, their protocols are as long as 84 hours, which clearly is also very burdensome for the patient. Good, thank you. So there are clearly uh, significant uh, limitations in terms of our diagnostic testing for narcolepsy, and we, we desperately need to have better and improved uh, diagnostic tools available to us. So we perhaps have to just wait for the future for that. So now that we've talked about the, the signs, the symptoms, the diagnostic criteria, let's get, go back to our case of uh, Maria. We would uh, want to go over the patient's presentation and uh, look at that as uh, consistent with the diapathic hypersomnia. Um, the uh, duration of sleep is greater than 10 hours a day, and uh, that is significant. Uh, and um, what we would expect uh, for somebody who has idiopathic hypersomnia. Um, the patient doesn't have cataplexy, so clearly is not a type 1 narcoleptic patient. Uh, we don't know too much about her, her nighttime sleep, but as you've uh, indicated, uh, you know, you can have some uh, abnormal REM phenomena at night, like dreaming, excessive dreaming, etc., and even sleep paralysis, and that can be consistent uh, with both uh, narcolepsy or idiopathic hypersomnia. However, um, uh, you know, we would look uh, in more detail at her uh, sleep studies and uh, 
Uh, and we know that her uh, multiple sleep latency test does have one sleep onset REM period, uh, not two that would be consistent with uh, narcolepsy. She does fall asleep very rapidly in, in six minutes. And she does have a very long sleep time at 702 two minutes. Uh, the confusing factor, and I think you brought this up before, Anne-Marie, is the depression. I mean, uh, what would you do to sort of uh, recognize whether the depression is playing a part in this or not? Sure. So I think that it's multifactorial as well. It's not only the symptoms of depression, but it's also notable that although she's not reporting features of cataplexy, She's on fluoxetine, which is a REM suppressant. Right. And so you have someone who is on fluoxetine, and hopefully they use protocols to be able to um, withhold the fluoxetine prior to the testing, most typically two weeks or at least five half-lives, to ensure that it's not contributing negatively to this. The challenge is, is that when you look at the DSM-5 or the Diagnostic Statistical Manual that we utilize to diagnose a variety of different mental health conditions, most notably sleep features are part of many of them, both hypersomnolence and insomnia. So when seeing an individual who has features of idiopathic hypersomnia where sleepiness is impeding on their ability to function in the typical fashion that they would like to, it's really hard to say, is it an adjustment disorder? Is it something that is a consequence of my life has become derailed from what I'm used to, and therefore I have depressed mood related to that? Or is it true depression that is comorbid associated with it? Or is it just a misdiagnosis? And when we more optimally treat the features of idiopathic hypersomnia, we find that all these other features that appear as purposeful withdrawal are in fact reflective of the actual condition of idiopathic hypersomnia. And I think we would both agree that in this particular patient, all the features do add up to idiopathic hypersomnia. The symptoms that she has, the, uh, the features on the polysomnographic testing, and that's all consistent with uh, idiopathic hypersomnia. Well, I hope that today's CMEO briefcase uh, program has helped everyone develop a foundation for diagnosing idiopathic hypersomnia. Emery, can you summarize for us our SMART goals? SMART uh, goals stand for specific, measurable, attainable, relevant, and timely goals. Sure, Dr. Therapy. So first, we would hope that you could differentiate idiopathic hypersomnia from other medical, psychiatric, sleep disorders, as well as medication and substance use. We also hope you will be able to distinguish between the subtleties of idiopathic hypersomnia and narcolepsy type 1 and type 2, that you'll be able to incorporate the ICSD-3 text revision guidelines into practice when diagnosing patients suspected of having idiopathic hypersomnia. And finally, recognize that diagnostic tools utilized for idiopathic hypersomnia do have some limitations. Today's CMEO briefcase is part one of a three-part series of case-based activities that can be found on the Sleep Education Hub. I hope you'll check out the other two activities in the series. The Sleep Medicine Education Hub has these activities as well as many others on sleep disorders. Thank you to our audience for joining us today and to uh, Emery Morse. Thank you very much for, for your uh, valuable information that you've given us. Uh, it's very detailed and I'm sure now everybody has a really good uh, basis uh, for understanding and diagnosing idiopathic hypersomnia. To receive CME CE credit for this activity, 
the participants must complete the post-test and evaluation online. Participants will be able to download and print their certificate immediately upon completion of the evaluation. Be safe, take care of yourselves so that you can provide the best care for your patients. Thank you.